0: This semester, what I want to do is we're going to look at a series, a uh, number of parables from Luke's Gospel. And uh, we're going to start this week by looking at the, the passage that Emily just read for us about Jesus, this Pharisee, his name is Simon, and the, the sinful woman. And in the middle of it is a parable. And it's usually referred to as the parable of the two debtors. And uh, what I want to do with you tonight by way of this passage is to get you to ask the question, what is Christianity really all about? How does it work? What's it all about? How does it work? And the reason I want to talk about that is basically I have two reasons. One is Duke culture. Duke culture is a place where how you do How well you measure up and how you perform is your identity. For most of us in this room, and I throw myself in this, I went to Duke, I graduated in 97, I'm still trying to get over it as much as I loved it, uh, is uh, I really do think, I'll take a risk, that you think basically every day your worth and value in this world really does depend on how well you do in your classes. Your worth and value in this world really does depend on what other people think about you. Which sorority or fraternity you get into, which uh, selective living house you get into, which Duke Engage program you get. Uh, you know, I will have conversations with a number of you who don't, don't, don't get into Duke Engage, and you're going to be offended that you didn't get in. What is that? That's a part of the, the atmosphere you breathe here is who you are equals how well you measure up. Now, for some of you it might be fairly obvious, some of you might not be. That is absolutely antithetical to the Christian message in the Bible. That is the opposite of what I hope to convey to you and sort of begin to weasel into your life in hopefully a good way and begin to sort of retool that and set you free from that because that's what jesus came to do the other reason is there's a common misunderstanding about christianity i would venture to guess for people who don't profess faith in jesus on this campus almost all of them think christianity and religion are the same thing perhaps you may have had someone or will have someone ask you so do you drink and if you say yes well you know that's fine you, can, you know whatever we we'll talk about that later if you say no they might go oh well you must be religious if you had that happen and here's I think what they're actually saying you must be committed to a certain moral code that tells you what you can and can't do and that's what it means to be a Christian. You don't do bad stuff and you try to do good stuff as often as you can. I think for most people, even many, many Christians, that's sort of the default understanding of what Christianity is. And I want to talk to you about what is Christianity, how does it work, because of how, what Duke culture is like, and also because of a misunderstanding about Christianity. And when I say religion... I'm actually wanting to pit religion against Christianity, which I know religion can have very good and positive uh, definitions. But to my knowledge, there's only one place in the Bible where religion is referred to in a positive way, and it's in James chapter 1. So, what I want to do for our purposes is, is contrast them. And what I mean by religion is this I obey, therefore, I'm accepted. Christianity is I am accepted and loved in Jesus, therefore I obey. Those are two radically different ways of thinking about Christianity. Totally different. And I would submit to you that religion, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, that is Duke culture. If you do really well... You'll get what's coming to you, and people will like you. If you don't, you might realize, "Wow, um, I don't get to do certain things, and that means certain people don't want to talk to me." Uh, those are the two big things: do culture and misunderstanding about religion. And, and back to this big question: How does Christianity work? How does uh, what's it all about? According to this passage in, in Luke seven. Uh, I want to try to answer the question by putting it this way. What is it all about? Christianity is based on your ability to, is not based on your ability to measure up. It's based on accepting the free gift you can't earn. It's not about your ability to measure up. It's about a free gift, accepting a free gift that you can't earn. And I want to try to unpack this for us by looking at this passage under 3 in 3 ways. I want to look at this conflict between religion and the gospel. And I want to look at The gift of grace, and I want to look at the promise of Jesus. So first, let's look at this idea, this conflict between religion and the gospel. What's going on here? You have this situation where this Pharisee asked Jesus to come to his house and eat with him. And what you need to realize, this is probably a fairly uh, significant banquet. Simon is a Pharisee. Later in the passage, we find out that there are other friends of his who are also Pharisees. This is a significant occasion where they invited Jesus probably to have some theological dialogue. These are theological stalwarts, if you will. And he's been invited to this. Interestingly enough, just before this, in in Luke 7, Jesus is referred to as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. What's striking is he's also a friend of Pharisees, but they don't see that. He shows up for dinner, and in that day and time, the way that they ate, they had a low table, and how you would, you would recline at the table. You would lean on your right arm, and your feet would stick out behind you away from the table, okay? So all of a sudden then, this woman shows up, a woman of the city who's a sinner. She shows up. Now, what's, how on earth does she get into this meal? She wasn't invited. What's up with that? Part of it is very hard, I think, for us to to grasp. It was not uncommon at all in that day and time for there to be a dinner like this, where people knew there would be religious leaders and figures who would be debating and talking about significant issues, and people would wander in and out, and they would listen. They would sit around the perimeter and soak it in. So for this woman to show up is really not that unusual. But what's unusual is what she does. She shows up. She has um, oil or anointment of some kind. She's, and remember, Jesus' feet are behind him, so he's at the table, and she shows up and she's weeping. And she begins to, her tears begin to fall on his feet. And you need to realize the word there for weeping is like a downpour. She's undone, she's heard about Jesus and his message of grace, and she's completely undone. She's weeping at his feet. And then she does, in this day and time, what you don't do. You let your hair down in public. (laughs) Odd to us, but at that day and time, you did not let, if you were a woman, you did not let your hair down unless you were with your husband and you were in private. This is a very suggestive thing that she's doing, for all the Pharisees there, she's basically confirming for them that she's a sinner. Perhaps a prostitute, although I wouldn't press that. That she is making moves towards Jesus. Imagine that. She's flirting with him. Uh, they're starting to freak out, especially Simon. She begins to dry his feet. And then she gets around to what she actually came to do to anoint him. Usually you anointed people on the head. She anoints him on his feet. You know, in in that day and time, people wore sandals. Your feet were dirty, full of dust. Uh, It was customary that you would be given water and something to wash your feet with when you went to someone's home. She's wiping his feet, cleaning them with her hair, anointing them with oil. This is a profound demonstration of the impact of grace on her life. This is, this is worship at its most profound, humble, grateful... I, I'm, I usually, when I read this, I, can't, I just am undone by this woman and her love for Jesus. That's the situation. She walks in. Now, why does Simon react to this? Look at verse 38, or verse actually 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. She's a sinner, and he should have known that if he's a prophet. If he was God's representative to come proclaim what he said earlier in Luke, which is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, God's restoration of everything, he should know better. What do, you, what do we do with that? What is, this is, Simon is completely in conflict here with God's grace. This is the conflict of religion and the gospel. And what does that create for him? When you get religion and the gospel confused, you will struggle to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. That's his problem. He cannot fathom that God's agent of redemption would allow a woman like that to touch his feet. It, he has no categories for it at all. But Jesus receives this woman, and by doing that implicitly, it challenges Simon's self image. He's a Pharisee. Pharisees were uh, very devout, religious people who not only did they care about following God's laws in the Old Testament, there was a whole body of what they called the tradition of the elders. You can read about that in Mark 7. Jesus undoes them in Mark 7 for their adherence to rules and regulations that interfere with who God really is and his love for sinners. Jesus and Simon are in battle here, if you will. But they also, then, in verse 39, he says, um, Well, yeah, I already talked about this. The woman, she's a sinner. When you, not only when you get the gospel, confused religion, do you struggle to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing, you will also constantly compare yourself to other people. When he says she's a sinner, what is he implicitly saying? I'm not like her. I belong here. She does not. I am acceptable to God. She is not. Now, comparing yourself to people, that cuts two ways. If you get the gospel and religion confused, what you'll end up doing is you'll sit in your, um, your study groups or your discussion groups or whatever, or in class, and you'll feel really self-conscious if someone gets done before you. You'll feel really self-conscious if, for some reason, you take longer in taking an exam than other people. Or you'll also get really smug if you find out, wow, wow. I I was the top of the curve in, in my orgo class or something. Comparing yourself isn't just you looking down on other people. It could also be you looking up at other people. You might be really high and mighty and think, wow, I'm actually, maybe I'm not average and mediocre at Duke. Maybe you are one of those people who will be the number one, number two, number three person in the class. Your big problem is you'll think you're better than everybody. But perhaps most of you will feel like, I don't really belong here. I'm average. (laughs) I'm mediocre, which is basically a swear word for you. I know that about you um, because it kind of is for me. Um, I hate mediocrity. Um, And you'll spend all of your time feeling like, I'm not good enough, and you'll be in despair. Essentially, what you're saying is, How this works for you, here's a test. Are you elated with your successes and are you undone by your failures? If that's you, you've got the gospel and religion confused. Here's my point. Trying to be really good can be just as big a hindrance to understanding what the gospel is as being really, really bad. That's what Jesus is getting at. Trying to be really, really good can make it even almost harder to understand the gospel than being really, really bad. That's what's playing out in this passage. But here, the unique message of Christianity is this. You're far more sinful than you've ever dared to admit. And you're far more loved and accepted in Christ than you've ever dared to imagine at the very same time. That's what this woman is a picture of. Jesus even says her sins are many, and she is a loved child of God. That brings her to enormously heart moving worship. So, given Simon's reaction to this, to Jesus and to this woman, what does Jesus do? This is brings us to the free gift of grace, verses forty and forty three. You need to notice he tells him a parable about these two people, about this money lender and these two debtors. It's striking what he doesn't do. He doesn't look at Simon and say, you're a jerk. You need to get your act together and stop doing that. What's he do? He takes him to the heart of Christianity. He takes him to the free gift of grace. That's what this parable is really about. He tells him this parable, and it tells us three things about grace, that I hope you let soak into your soul. The first one is that grace is humbling. Look at verse 42. Jesus just laid out the situation, these two money lenders who owed 500 denarii and 150, and then verse 42 he says, when they could not pay. Grace is humbling. What does that really mean? It presupposes you are unable to pay your debt. It presupposes you can't Make it right. Grace tells you, you cannot make your life work right. You can't fix yourself and you can't fix other people. That's what I think one of the most profoundly humbling things that you and I can hear in this environment. Because you'll be told you are gifted and you are competent and you are. But don't be fooled into thinking <clears throat> that that means you're okay. The other thing he teaches here, that grace is costly. Look in verse 44 again, he says, or 42, he says, he canceled the debt of both. What happens if a money lender cancels your debt? Does it just evaporate in thin air? No. The money lender absorbs your debt. He bears the cost of your inability to pay it. This is the heart of Christianity. This is what Jesus does on the cross for sinners. You have a debt to pay to God according to the Bible. Paul says in Romans 3 that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. No one can make that up. This, this, this parable is this picture of Jesus who pays, he absorbs your debt. He takes it upon himself, the debt that you can't pay, so that you no longer have it. You are free. That obligation is no longer yours. The third thing is, verse 44, grace is convicting so he just talks to Simon about grace is humbling and it's costly. And then he asks him, if this parable plays out, Simon, who's going to love the money lender more? Simon, very funny, he says, well, I suppose the one for whom the canceled the larger debt. Oh, really? You suppose that that's the case? It's kind of obvious. Jesus is backing him into a corner. He's getting him to have to see... I think you might know what's going on, but you just don't like that. It chafes against you. And then Jesus turns up the heat in verse 44. He says to him, do you see this woman? In the next several verses, Jesus rehearses how Simon failed to even do the basic socially acceptable and accepted things for a, a guest like Jesus in his home and compares it to the woman who is a sinner and her elaborate display of love for Jesus. Okay, that would be a complete offense to Simon. Jesus is basically saying, this woman is in and you're out. And you're a religious, you're a professional holy man. (laughs) And you don't understand this. And this woman does. Jesus, the gospel reverses everything you and I think about who we are and who God is and how he relates to us. What's he really, Jesus, doing here? In these few verses where he compares Jesus to Simon, the simplest way I know to put it is this. Jesus is basically asking Simon, and he's asking you, why are you holding me at arm's length? Why are you pushing me away? Why are you holding me at arm's length? And the only answer is that Simon doesn't understand what grace is, nor his need for it, despite all of his best efforts as a Pharisee, all of his obedience as a Pharisee. See, through this story, he's asking you, do you know this grace? Why are you holding me out? Why are you pushing me back? Has God's grace ever cut you open and left you humbled by what you've done wrong? And also, for all the reasons you ever did anything right. That's what Jesus is trying to get you to ask. See, the difference between the woman and Simon is that she believes that Jesus loves her, not because she measures, measures up, but precisely because she doesn't measure up. That's what distinguishes her and Simon. She's, she's got it. That Jesus loves her because she's a complete mess. Not because she isn't a mess. That, this is the profound irony of this passage. This person that you think would be in is out. And the person that you think would be uh, out is in. Or in is out, you get it. Pharisee, you think he'd be in, but he's out. The sinful woman, you think she'd be out, but she's in. Uh, this is, that's what Simon does not see. The story teaches you that you need to be saved from your good works just as much as from your bad works. He doesn't see that. Do, do you see that? Do you believe that? Do you see that one of your biggest struggles as a student at Duke, trying to understand Christianity, will be your efforts to succeed? Your efforts to do what... You need to do to make your life work right. And if you're a Christian, it's a quick and easy jump for you to translate that entire way of living and call it a sanctified version of Christianity. Do you see that? That you need to be saved from your your sin as well as all your virtue. Okay, after telling him this parable, he then turns to the woman The last few verses of this passage, and and then we'll be done. And he makes two promises to her. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. And he says, your faith has saved you. Now, why does he make these promises? I think the reason he makes these promises is what I'm telling you is really hard to believe. It's really, really hard to believe. And if you really try to understand this and put it into practice in your life and live by it, you will feel like you're hitting your head against the wall a lot of the time. And you need to know that that is okay. That is part of learning to enjoy and to worship Jesus like this woman. It's not always easy to believe. And now think about this. Why do we say that? Put yourself in this woman's shoes again. Remember, the place she's at, this banquet of religious elites. She is not welcome there. Get, think of her background. If, you, know, you want to talk about a feeding ground for insecurities <laughs> and, and for doubts? This is it. If there was ever a time where she would feel insecure and wonder, okay, is this message that Jesus has told me really true? That situation is where she would feel it. But she says to her, he says to her, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. What's he, why does he say that? He's promising her that what she's already been given is a reminder to her that Christianity isn't about how well you measure up. It's all about God's grace to her and Jesus forgiveness is always meant to get your eyes off yourself and onto Jesus. It's meant to take your eyes of, off of all your weakness and failure, and all your self-righteous and arrogant reasons for why you do what you do, to get your eyes off of that and onto Jesus. It's very it's almost like it's exactly like what we read in Psalm 103 when it says as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? But then he also says, your faith has saved you. Now, if you're paying attention, you might think, okay, is Jesus changing this, the game here? Is he saying, okay, your, your belief is what saves you? Your, the strength of your faith in Jesus is what saves you? I would tell you that's exactly the, it's the opposite. That's not what he's saying, and, and here, here's why. Because in the story... When Jesus says your faith has saved you, he's contrasting that with her many sins earlier in the passage. He's basically saying all of what you used to be defined by no longer defines you. What defines you now is what you have been given by trusting me. Jesus is basically saying to her when he says your faith has saved you that Jesus... He he no longer relates to her on the basis of her sin. He relates to her on the basis of free grace, of forgiveness, of His work in reconciling her to her God. He relates to her on the basis of uh, not of her sin and her guilt, but on the basis of her new relationship with Him. And here's what I want you to think about. When you think about faith in Jesus, you will always be tempted to think, This is true because I feel confident about it. I'm believing this today. And I want to read you a quote about what biblical faith is that gets you out of yourself and into Jesus. Listen to this. It says, True faith has nothing whatever of merit about it, and in the highest sense cannot be called a work. It is but laying hold of a Savior's hand, leaning on a husband's arm, ...and receiving a physician's medicine. It brings with it nothing to Christ... ...but a sinful man's soul. It gives nothing... ...contributes nothing... ...pays nothing... ...performs nothing. It only receives... ...takes... ...accepts... ...grasps... ...and embraces... ...the glorious gift... ...of justification... ...or grace... ...which Jesus bestows... And by new daily acts, enjoys that gift. Jesus makes a promise to this woman. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. And he makes that promise to you today and forever. If you would come to him and trust him. And let him rewire you. And make you into a new person to make you more fully human. Remember where we started? We started because I wanted to, you to ask, what is Christianity about? How does it work? And I tried tried to answer that for you by looking at this conflict between religion and the gospel, at the free gift of grace and the promise of Jesus. And I wanted to start out with this passage just to give you a feel for what REF is about, what you'll hear, what I hope that you will embrace and give your life away to. You see, the good news of this passage is that whether you're really, really bad or you're really, really good, Jesus is a friend to both kinds of people. Because the gospel tells you that you're never so bad, you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and you're never so good, you're beyond the need for God's grace. If you'd like to, feel free to pray with me. God, thank you for this passage, and I pray that you would work it into our hearts and our lives. I pray that you would make us people who are quick to repent, quick to run to Jesus with all of our insecurities and all of our questions and our doubts and our fears. Father, give us refuge in the good news that Jesus died at infinite cost to himself so that we could truly live.